I want to read our text um, entirely this morning and uh, invite you to, to read along with me or listen to these words from Mark 3, starting in verse 20. It says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that Jesus and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and mother. This is the word of God from Mark 3. I want to say this before we jump in uh, to this story in more detail. Uh, I don't know what you thought when you heard verse 29. This week I had all different kinds of thoughts, feelings, questions, uncertainties. Larkin, who is teaching tonight, um, Hillsborough Village, he and I have just been wrestling with this verse all week. And I think I, I, I want to address this from the start. I think what Jesus says here in verse 29 is one of the hardest things that he, that he says in all of his ministry, in all of his life. And we're going to deal with it this morning. We're going to unpack it. We're going to learn what it means. And just like every other thing that Jesus has spoken and given to us, we as a people of faith are going to, by faith, align our lives around his words. And so we come here this morning, and if you're a follower of Jesus, we trust in Jesus, Right? Right? Don't we trust in Jesus? Yeah, we, we trust him. We trust that he loves us. And we receive his words and we let his teaching shape the way that we live and guide our lives. So we're going to deal with this verse, uh, verse 29, this tough verse. But I also want to say this, uh, that verse 29 is not the only thing going on in this story. And all week, I've, as I've been looking at this verse and wrestling through how to teach it. It's like God has just continually reminded me, Brandon, there is so many more good things in here about me. And don't miss all the things that I have for you in this text because you might be concerned about verse 29. Let me explain it like this. I remember the days and weeks and months leading up to getting married to court and just being real transparent. I knew it was going to be a hard day in so many ways because my parents had just gotten divorced a couple years earlier. And to be honest, I was just like anxious and nervous and worried, scared. All that goes into a wedding, all the dynamics and the tensions, how it's already tense anyway. And 
you add something like that in there and it makes it so much harder. I was like dreading in, in one sense, like part of that. But the whole other side of this is my wedding day was the day that I was marrying this girl that I deeply loved. I was going to put a ring on her finger. We were going to dance and celebrate and drink L8 and have a great honeymoon. And I wasn't going to let this one detail that I anticipated being hard make me miss everything else about the day. And I don't want us to be so sidetracked by verse 29. And if you're not, and if what I've said here has only made you more anxious, I'm sorry about that. I just, all week, this is kind of the way that my mind works. I'm like, crap, what does that mean? And I just, I don't want us to miss all that God has for us, okay? So um, I want us to kind of work through this verse by verse. I got kind of three kind of big outlines to help us work our way through it. The first three verses, it's all about our perceptions of Jesus. If you're a note taker, Uh, If you need this for organizing, that's okay. The first kind of section is about our perceptions of Jesus. And so verse 20, it says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, Jesus is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. I really like the way this story begins. And the reason is because I, I love the diversity that it shows in the perceptions that we have of Jesus. I love it because this is Nashville. This is us this morning. That as we hear the name of Jesus, we all have different thoughts, different opinions, different perspectives about him. <clears throat> For some, and I can't even begin to explain to tell you how much I admire you and how grateful we are to have you here with us this morning. For some of you, when you hear the name of Jesus, you are incredibly uneasy. You're fearful. Maybe it's because someone in your past who claimed to be a follower of Jesus deeply wounded you. And so now every time you hear the name of Jesus, it just evokes all these emotions of fear. I tell this story because... It's in a funny way, but I think it really does speak about how so many of us have come to this place. Um, Finley, our two-year-old daughter, she's sweet as can be, and one of the things that she started to do is to to play church at our house, and so she will invite me and Court and Jones into her room, and she'll take her little Bible that Brooke and Whitney, Ethos kids, got her, and she'll preach to us as we're sitting on the bed, and then she'll sing some songs, and she'll tell us to come and preach, and... and, um, the other day, Court walked into her room and she said, you get out of my church. Get out of my church. And, and Court told me that. And we were like, where did she learn that? Like, like she's never going to hear that from here, like from, from our church. Like she's never going to hear that from us about anyone. And I go, for so many of you, that's the words that are ringing true that When you hear of Jesus, you just picture that old man or that woman that looked at you and said, you're not welcome here. And some of us, when we come in this place, when we hear of Jesus, it just evokes these fears, uneasiness. For some, as you've been coming, maybe for a while now, as you've gotten more plugged into house church, if you've started to read the scriptures and pray, and the things that you were taught about Jesus, or maybe the things that you previously believed about Jesus are starting to change. 
And some of you, maybe you come here this morning and you're wrestling with this tension about the things that you've been told about Jesus compared to the things that you're actually experiencing in Jesus. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for two weeks, for two years, for 25 years. And all of us, we, we come in this place with different beliefs and different perspectives, different stories. Some don't believe in Jesus at all. Some believe deeply. And we just kind of find ourselves in all different places in between. And what I love about Mark 3 in this story, it's by no means exhaustive of the different perspectives of Jesus. But we get three different and I think very interesting perspectives. The first we see is of the crowd. And I want to notice this about the crowd. The crowd is marked by this eager anticipation just to be with Jesus, to be in his presence. And so it tells us in the story that, that Jesus comes home. And I just kind of picture Jesus coming home on a Friday night. I don't know if you've ever had a week like this. You've had a long work week. You've had a long week of class. And you just come home. And your uh, idea for what Friday night's going to look like is Jet's Pizza and a two liter of Coke and your buddies. And, and just imagine Jesus like going home and going, oh, I can finally just take a breath. And I love in this story that says that the crowds are so excited to be with him, that they are so excited that Jesus is home, that Jesus is near, that they literally let themselves in his house. And Jesus can't even eat a piece of his Hawaiian pizza because there are so many people crowding him. You think about this, the excitement of the crowd that people drop their plans on a Friday night because they hear that Jesus, the excitement, the, the boldness, the audacity to let yourself into his house, to be in his presence. You have the excitement of the crowd. The second kind of perspective in this story is the family. And the thing that I want us to know about Jesus' family is that their understanding about Jesus had come from what others had told them about Jesus. I think this detail is very interesting, very important. It said, when they had heard... When they had heard, you see, people were talking about Jesus and his family had heard through the grapevine and their opinions about Jesus weren't formed based on their experiences with Jesus, but on what others were telling them about Jesus. Third group that we see in this story is the teachers of the law. And let me just say this, let me kind of explain it like this. There's this idea out there when it comes to God that if I could just see God, if I could just see his power, like, if I could just see a miracle, if I knew without a shadow of a doubt, if there was this indisputable evidence that God was alive, then I would believe. And this text just kind of bumps up against that idea, that way of thinking. You see, the teachers of the law had seen Jesus heal a man who was paralyzed. They had seen Jesus heal a man in the middle of a church gathering on a Sunday morning. They'd seen people who had been possessed by demons, liberated by Jesus Christ. They'd seen the miraculous and the power of Jesus. And instead of being receptive and open and willing to just see all that he was doing, to receive him, the teachers of the law shut him off. It says that they came down from Jerusalem, and it's interesting, they made this trip not to believe in Jesus, but to belittle Jesus. Not to hear and see, but to stand against. And, 
And they make this incredibly strong accusation. Look what they say in verse 22. He is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Now, Beelzebul and prince of demons are essentially just nicknames for Satan. Just to kind of give us a little understanding, we, we haven't spent a whole lot of time talking about Satan um, in the series of Mark. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about Satan um, kind of in the past. Um, but Jesus has a lot to say about Satan all throughout the scriptures. I just want to share a few things real quick that, that Jesus says, that Peter says of, of Satan, just to kind of give us an idea of who he is. And so in John chapter 8, Jesus will say this. He, he calls Satan the father of lies. In John 10, Jesus will say this to Satan, that he has come to steal. He's come to kill and to destroy. Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 18 said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1 through 11, Jesus has this dialogue and interaction with Satan. Peter, one of Jesus' apostles, one of his best friends, will say this in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. He says, your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And I share these verses with us so that we can understand that to Jesus, Satan exists and he's real. And I share this with us so that we can understand the offensiveness, the unimaginable accusation that they make at Jesus. They look at Jesus and they say, everything that you have done is by Satan's power and from Satan's heart. And I want us to notice how Jesus responds. And this is kind of the second movement of this text that I saw. Second kind of movement is that Jesus is after our freedom. Jesus is after our freedom. And so he says this in verse 23. Jesus called the teachers of the law over to him. And he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plant, plunder the strong man's house. As I was reading back over the stories that we've covered so far in the book of Mark, over and over again, what I saw is that people who were desperate for spiritual or emotional or psychological or physical help, as people came to Jesus, they experienced in Jesus a God who deeply cared for them. A God who noticed them, who loved them, who took time to stop what he was doing. They experienced in Jesus a God who had the power to help. You know, I was thinking about the way that tornadoes work. I grew up in West Kentucky and it felt like we had uh, at least a tornado a year and um, they would always kind of uh, get a helicopter view where they would kind of hover over the, the path that the tornado took and, and you could always tell where the tornado had been based on the damage. And in Mark chapter three, I just kept thinking the Jesus is the opposite of a tornado. Like you can tell where Jesus had been because of the way that people's lives had been changed radically for the good. People who are being tortured by the demonic and Jesus shows up to the people and drives the demonic out. People who are overwhelmed with darkness as it oppressed and tortured and lied to them and Jesus shows up and drives the darkness away. People who were lame walked. 
People who had spent their entire lives living in rebellion and sin to God, when they met Jesus, when they met God in the flesh, they experienced not wrath, but forgiveness. And I just kept thinking where Jesus was, life got better. Where Jesus was, there was freedom. Where Jesus was, there's freedom. And the reason the teachers of the law, the reason this accusation that they make calling Jesus possessed by the enemy, the reason it's such a big deal is because everywhere Satan works, everywhere he goes, there's oppression. There are lies being believed. There is separation from God. And Jesus Christ kind of has this heart-to-heart conversation with the teachers of the law and with us today. And he says, Here's, you need to know what actually happens when I come in contact with people who are spiritually and physically and psychologically and emotionally oppressed. You see, everywhere the enemy is working, me, the stronger man, Jesus Christ, I go and I bind Satan. And I set people free. Where people who are, are, are oppressed by the enemy, I'm in the business of showing up and tying up the weaker man, Satan, and then plundering his house and taking all that I want. And I was just so reminded this week, so moved, because what Jesus is saying to us in these simple but just kind of weird and confusing verses is that more than anything, that what he wants is you and me. And he wants our freedom. And he has a power to bring it about. And that every place in our lives, every person that we come in contact with who is oppressed by the enemy, Jesus Christ says, I am the stronger man and I will show up and I will bind and I will set free. I was working on teaching on Thursday and the Lord through the Holy Spirit just laid this verse on my heart. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 17, where it says, Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Where Jesus Christ is, there's freedom. And if you come here this morning and you just look at your life and you go, I need help. You are in the right place. You see, I believe deep in my heart, the reason I've given my life to preaching the word of God is that Jesus isn't just wanting us to see all that he did in Mark 3. He's wanting us to understand that this is what he's still doing today. Where Jesus Christ is and his spirit dwells, there's freedom. And there's joy and there's life. I think about my buddy Ben Baker. And I've shared this story before at Ethos. Ben, a couple years ago, had got hurt in a soccer accident. And... For about a year, he had debilitating migraines, so bad that he couldn't work, Um, so bad that he couldn't sleep on his pillow at night because the pressure hurt so bad, couldn't listen to music, couldn't watch TV, couldn't sit in the sunlight because the light hurt his head so bad. So Will and Katie and Josh and Dave and I, a couple of us went over to his house one day and uh, he took us into his bedroom closet and he showed us this little chair, kind of like the really comfortable chair you're sitting on today. And he took us into this little closet and he said, this is where I spend most of my day. And he shuts the door and he put on headphones. And I'm not saying that, that Satan had done this to him, but I want you to know what happened when we laid our hands on him and we prayed. 
Jesus healed him. His headaches completely gone, haven't come back. He's working, he's healthy, he's alive. Where the spirit of the Lord Jesus is, there is freedom. I think about Dwayne Dixon, a guy in our church who works in construction. We prayed for him this past year, and Dwayne was working one day, and a nail went through his eye. They rushed him to the hospital, and the doctor said, you're going to not only lose your vision, you're going to lose your eye. And we prayed, and you know what happened? God healed him. He didn't just keep his eye. Dwayne has 20-20 vision in his eye. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And you see, I don't want us to, 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 to start mixing and blending freedom with other things that we might tag along with the definition. You see, freedom doesn't mean that life is always happy, that we always get what we want, that hard things never happen. No, in fact, Jesus says the exact opposite in John 16. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. You see, but the freedom that comes through Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit goes much deeper than the physical. I think about a guy in a church named John Shoulders, and John preached here a couple years ago, and he was telling about how this man killed his father driving under the influence of alcohol. Took John's dad away from him way too young. You think about the anger, the resentment, the bitterness that you might have if you lost your dad to somebody who did this. And because John is a man full of the Holy Spirit of God, he went to this guy, looked him in the eyes and said, I forgive you. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. I think about a guy in our church. Sorry, he's not in our church. His daughter goes to our church, and I was having a conversation with him on Wednesday, and um, he's having these major eye problems right now. There's a great chance that he's going to lose his sight altogether, and he told me that he was going to go to his church that night, and the people were going to lay their hands on him and pray, and we were just kind of talking back and forth, and he's like, I know that God can heal me. He said, but if he doesn't, it's okay. It's totally Okay. I said, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. I think about my own life. When I realized that Jesus Christ is real and he's alive and that he died on the cross to pay the price for my sin. When I realized that the shameful and despicable things that I've done, that because of the blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary, because of Jesus Christ and his deep love and commitment to you and me, we are forgiven and loved. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is not fear. There is not condemnation. There is not shame. There is freedom. There is joy. There is what Peter talks about, a joyful anticipation of being face-to-face with Jesus Christ one day. Where the spirit of the Lord Jesus is, there is freedom. There is freedom. Keeps going in verse 28. Jesus says, truly I tell you, very truly, People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. Jesus says something beautiful before he talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He says, you can be forgiven of every sin. 
Praise you for that, God. So let's deal with this. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I encourage you this week to read, to pray, to press into the Lord Jesus yourself in this. This is what I have seen and what I've experienced this week as I've read this and wrestled with this. This is what I believe that Jesus is saying about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I couldn't condense it to a sentence or even two, so it's like a paragraph, so sorry. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is seeing and knowing that supernatural works are happening and that they are happening because of Jesus Christ. But being so closed off to Jesus, so against him, so opposed to him and his healing and his ways and his salvation and his mercy, his resurrection, his overturning of death and his offer of freedom that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit, that one would give credit to Satan for the clear and good things that God alone has done for mankind. All right, now repeat that back to me verbatim. Blasphemy is this big and honestly just kind of hard to understand idea. I suppose that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit could be a one-time thing. But I think this week after pressing in and praying and reading, uh, seeing God at work through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit and having a posture in the deepest the unchanging places in the heart. I believe it's more putting a stake in the ground over and over again that I am against you personally forever, no matter what. It's a posture of unchanging hate and resistance to the work of God through the Holy Spirit. It's a posture of willful blindness. It's a complete denial of a need for or desire for God and the cleansing work that comes by the blood of Jesus. And it's constant. It's never-ending choice that we keep making against God. A couple of questions that I want to address here. I read this this week and I thought, I hope I haven't done this. Seriously, right? And I was wrestling with that. Have, have I done this? Have I committed this eternal sin? If you're worried, if you've done this, if you come here as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, filled with the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, if you're concerned about what this means for your walk with Jesus, then you haven't done it. The Holy Spirit of God is at work in you. And he's exposing this desire that you have in you to please God, to be with God. You have a desire for your life to be an offering and the fact that you wonder, the fact that you may be fearful is evidence to you believers that there's nothing to worry about. The posture of your heart is one that is receptive and in need of and wanting the work of the Holy Spirit of God. 
Why does Jesus tell us this? Anybody got a good answer? I don't think he tells us this so we can go around trying to figure out who's done this. I don't think he's told us this so that we can be paranoid, paranoid, wondering if we have done this. I think Jesus tells us this so that we can know how serious of an issue this is. To ignore Jesus and his work of trying to bring help and freedom in our lives into others is a big deal. To give credit to the enemy of God for the work of God is a big deal. You see, I think Jesus in Mark 3 is wanting us to be people that keep inviting the Holy Spirit of God to make us more like Jesus. That we keep inviting the Holy Spirit to take us into deeper places of freedom with God. The very thing that the Spirit of God has been doing all along. I think Jesus is wanting us, people, mankind, to be open and to receive, to have a posture in our hearts that is receptive to seeing God at work in our lives and being willing to just see, to not have a posture in our heart that is so shut off, to not become so set in our beliefs that we blatantly choose to close our eyes. Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit longs for our freedom. Third kind of movement in this text is that Jesus longs for us to know him. Jesus longs for us to know him. Verse 31, it says, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. And a crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. <laughs> Probably a pretty hurtful question for Mary. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. I want us to notice a couple things here. Did you notice that the family didn't move into the house where Jesus was? They didn't move as close as they could get to, they, as close as they could to, to be with him. That instead his family stood on the outside of the house. Never noticed that detail before. And I kept thinking about the danger in this. The danger in never moving, never fully going to where Jesus is, but for settling on what others have told you about Jesus. Settling for the outside when we were made for the inside. You see, the crowds, they got it. The crowds came to see that Jesus wanted them to really know him. Jesus wanted the crowds, he wanted people to see him for themselves, to hear him for themselves to sit in his presence, to have intimacy with God. You see, the crowds understood that they weren't made to just come and listen to sermons, and they weren't made to just come and to attend a worship gathering. They were made to have a closeness, a friendship with God. The same thing that all of us were made for. I was talking to my friend Karen Wood. Dave and I were having coffee with her a couple weeks ago, and, and she said this line to me, and it just stuck with me. She said, do you... 
You know those moments in your life where you see God, where you hear God, where you experience God? You're like, yeah, those are great moments. <laughs> she said, yeah, they are. She said, and I want to help our church, and I want to help our city. I want to help our world see that those times are not extraordinary, but that those moments are ordinary. Not extraordinary in the sense that they rarely happen. But I want our church to see that God speaks and that all people are made to hear him and see him. And I want our church to know how ordinary that is, how normal it is to interact with God. You see, God longs for us to know him. Jesus longs for you to know him personally, intimately. The second thing that I want us to notice in this story is that Jesus says, whoever does God's will is my family. Think about this. To be in the family with Jesus, let your heart go there for a minute. To have Jesus as a brother. Last weekend, Courtney and I, we went to visit my family in Murray. We stayed with my brother and my sister-in-law and their sweet little baby girl. And I realized how much of a gift it was to to be in family with my brother and my sister-in-law. To sit on their couch and to stay up late and to have access. To have the position of family. And Jesus is going, man, you can be in my family. You can sit at the dinner table with a father. The father who wants you there. I love this story. What do we do with this? I love the different perspectives that we bring to the table this morning of Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you are here this morning and you go, I I want in. I'm tired of my experience with Jesus being about what others have told me. I want to be in the innermost places of friendship with God. What do I do? And some of you are are, are asking yourself that question. I I want in. What do I do? And I love the, the simple words of Jesus. Step into the will of God. And you don't have to figure out what that means. I've been following Jesus for 18 years. I still don't have fully figured out what the will of God is. But I think what it means is that you would step into a life of getting to know him. That you'd be willing to to do whatever it takes to get into the innermost places of the house. That you're not going to let anything distract you from life with Jesus. That you'll become a person that prays, that hears from God. That a person that reads the scriptures and that clings to the words and you walk by faith in the things that have been written and spoken by God. To live in the will of God means that you become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ where you publicly make known your belief in Jesus, that you believe he is the one that has come to save us, and you get baptized. I unapologetically invite you all the way in this morning. Come all the way in. If you're on the outside of the house living on other people have told you, come all the way in. This is where you were made to live. Some of you this morning, you find yourself in this place where you've been walking in deep intimacy with God. Here in a minute, we're going to take communion. And 
we're going to stand up and Will's going to lead us in some more worship. And uh, you realize that God has just been so near and you've been hearing and your heart is just alive with him. As you break the bread and drink the cup, praise him and thank him and worship and sing your lungs out and then spill into the rest of the week living on mission with Jesus. Never grow tired of hearing and seeing God. For some of you, maybe you realize that you've been having intimacy with God, but you've not been inviting others into the innermost places with God. Maybe you've become so focused just on your walk, and so this morning as you take communion, as you break the bread and drink the cup, confess that to God. Confess that to who you take communion with. Go, man, I've just, I've become selfish. I've lost my missional eyes, my missional hearts. And, and then just pray. Have someone lay their hands on your shoulders. God, would you give us courage to pray, to share our faith, to invite people into your kingdom this week. And then do it. Don't just pray, then do it. And for some of you, maybe you come here this morning and you're not so sure about Jesus. You were never meant to live just on what others have told you about Jesus. You're made to know him personally. Sure, one last story. I remember, I think it was six years ago, Dave and I were out in California and for this conference. And uh, Dave loves to surf and he's really good at surfing. And uh, I remember him, we were sitting on the beach and we had got our boards for the day and we were going to go out. I've never surfed before, but I was eager to try. And so he gets on like the, the first wave and he's just riding, just sailing across the water, doing like what surfers do with his little seashell necklace on, just having a good time. And, and it was so awesome. And so that was, felt like a Dave story. Just added some good details right there. Uh-huh. And so he told me, so all you do is just, just get up, hop up on the board and, and just ride the wave. And I'm like, that's easy enough. I can do that. And so I go to, to the very first wave. I'm like in the water, ready to get on it. And the first wave comes and I try to get up and the board smacks me right in the face. And I'm angry, and I think I said several cuss words. I'm just sitting on the, the beach with my board, and my nose is bleeding. And, you know, for, for some of you, what I want to just say about life with God is just try it. And some of you are here this morning, and you're fearful about giving God a chance, and you're fearful that it's going to backfire, it's going to come back, and it's going to be like a stupid surfboard that hits you in the face. But you will never know the freedom the peace, the joy that comes, the hope that comes, till you give them a try. Sometime this week, I encourage you, man, if you want to have faith, if you want to believe, but you look at your life and you go, I just don't believe, I don't have faith, I want it, but I don't, I encourage you just in the quiet places of your life, after your roommates or after your wife or your husband or your kids go to bed, Man, just get down on your knees and close your eyes and just say this one prayer. God, will you help me to believe in Jesus? God, will you help me to believe in Jesus? God, will you help me to believe in Jesus? After several hours of trying, I got up on the surfboard. It wasn't pretty, but I got up. And I'm confident that if you will open your life, you will see and experience the freedom of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.